Erev Tov, good evening. We are continuing tonight in the introduction of the Rambam's Mishneh Torah. Tonight's shiur is dedicated in honor of the speedy recovery, the Refuash Lamav, a dear friend of our Kilan, a dear family member of mine, Ozer Ben Laam, Dr. Arthur Platt, whose Sefer Torah is right behind me. To my right, he was the first, him and his wife, to dedicate a Sefer Torah to Kilan Shalashamayim, to Shiviti. And I wanted to dedicate tonight's shiur in return his situation is not doing well, and I ask all of you to please have in mind uh, that Ozer ben Asher Harifuash the Ma'ab betoch Shachol Yisrael. Yishem Adonai Vorach Matav Adonai Misha Berach Avodenu Avraham Tzav Yaakov Yosef Moshe Aaron David Shlomo who Yivarech Tachole Ozer ben Am Merkada May Yivarech Tom Vizakeuto Vishmael B'Kol Tvedo Uschut Olatagen Ba'Adom Uval Beidom Shlomo Bet Kol Shalom Vishlach Oel Vorash Tamal B'Kol Evrav B'Kol Gidav En Nar Fanalo En Nar Fanalo Vachlimer Vachzgeo Vavreo we are in Rav Kapach's Mishneh Torah on page Lamed Chet 38, but it's in the introduction of the Mishneh Torah, whichever edition that you have. And we're in the middle of paragraph Chet 8. And so we discussed about Antignos Ishtocho, who received from Shimon HaTzadik, and Yosef ben Yezer, and Yosef ben Yochanan, who received from Antignos and his Betadin, we discussed the pair of Yoshua and Perchia and Itai Harbeli. And now, we are finally up to the third generation of Zugot, the third pair. Yehuda ben Tabai, Vishimon ben Shatach, some say Shetach, but in the writings of the Sephardim, I'm familiar with Shatach. So Yehuda ben Tabai and Shimon ben Shatach and their Bateidin received from Yehoshua ben Perachia and Itai Harbeli and their respective Bateidin. So this is now the third generation of oral transmission in this series of Zugot, of pairs, where one of them was the head of the Bateidin and one of them was the Nasi. And it depends on the Zug which one was which in those jobs, and maybe that's exactly what we are going to discuss tonight. In order to understand tonight's shiur, I have to give you a little bit of historical background, a tiny bit. And this history should be retained for next Monday night shiur, because the real, the real deep part of this zug is really less Yehuda ben Tabai and more Shimon ben Shatach, God forbid not to disparage one over the other, but our Chachamim record more information about the second pair than the first one, unlike the previous Zugot where we kind of found the opposite to be true. So if the previous Zug, the previous couple of Chachamim, they operated in the times of Yohanan Kohen Gadol of the Chashmonai family, this next pair is operating in the next generation of that dynasty under the rule of Yanai, King Yanai, otherwise known as Alexander Yanai. Alexander Yanai depends on which Talmud you look. is either a leader that perhaps shouldn't lead but had cordial, cordial relations with Chachamim or according to the Babylonian Talmud was a vicious enemy of the Chachamim and that's really going to be the difference between tonight's you and Monday night's Shiur B'zal Hashem. Yenai HaMelech, if I can remind you, is married to a queen, Shlom Tzion HaMalka. Shlom Tzion HaMalka is the sister 
of Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach. So here we have Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach here. His sister is married to the Hasmonean, and the Hashmonai king that is ruling over Israel at this time. It's important to know that this generation of Hashmonaim is also a very successful generation of Hashmonaim. They are expert statesmen. They have done things unparalleled. Some say that even close to Shalomo HaMelech's rule, they did some unbelievable things. Peace treaties, conquests of land, business dealings with other countries and other regimes as we're going to discuss together next week. And this is exactly the generation which Yehuda ben Tabai and Shimon ben Shatach are operating in. I think it's also important to understand that whereas the previous generation was dealing with the influence of the Hashmonaim and the Tzedokim, the Sadducees, into the Jewish community, unfortunately this generation is already dealing with a king who is a Hashmonai and a majority of a Sanhedrin have a Supreme Court in Jerusalem which were Sadducees, which were Tzedokim. And that has much of an effect on the way that these Chachamim operate, because these Chachamim can no longer operate with the assistance. Can no longer, can you hear me? Can no longer operate with the assistance of the Sanhedrin, because the Sanhedrin is not theirs. The Sanhedrin is no longer in the hands of the Pharisees, of the Pirushim, but today the Sanhedrin is in the hands of the Tzedokim, the Sadducees. With that in mind, let's discuss briefly what we know about Rabbi Yehuda ben Tabai. Next week's shiur I will dedicate entirely to Shimon ben Jatach, Rabbi Shimon ben Jatach. So in front of you, you have a PDF of an encyclopedia that I've been using often in our shiul. You should have a photocopy of page 420 and 421. Do you see that in your packets? So if you go to the Google Classroom and you find the Zoom invitation that you used to get here to this class in the first place, you'll see at the bottom of the Zoom invitation a PDF titled Yehuda Ben Tabai. So who was Rabbi Yudah Ben Tabai? Mechachmei Israel HaGedolim he was from the great sages of Israel, who stood at the leadership of the Sanhedrin in the days of the Second Temple, Hanikraim Zugot. And as we've already mentioned, he was one of those leaders that led in pairs in these Zugot. For those who may be familiar with the world of Shiduchim, Zivug is the same word as Zugot. It's the same root here. Hu him and his colleague Shimon ben Shatach, they were the third in line of these Zugot. And they operated under the rule of King Yanai. Now, 
There is a dispute among our rabbis in the Talmud, and this is something that we've, we'll, we'll discuss perhaps more next week. About which of these zugot, which one of them was the prince of the Jewish people, and which one of them was the av betadin of the Jewish people. And there are stories which can prove either direction. So depending on what we know about the life of this zug, we'll know which capacity, which office he served in. There is a machaloket between our chachamim. Our chachamim are in an argument among themselves which office each one held. Ledat Rabbi Meir, according to Rabbi Meir, Haya Yehuda ben Tabai Hanasi. Yehuda ben Tabai was the prince. Vishimon ben Shatach av betadin. And Shimon ben Shatach was the head of the betadin. Uledat chachamim lehefech. And the opinion of our chachamim is the opposite. So the majority of sages believe that Shimon ben Shatach was the prince of the Jewish people, and Yehuda ben Tabai was the head of the Betadin. Rabbi Meir believes the opposite to be true, that Yehuda ben Tabai was the prince, and Shimon ben Shatach was the head of the Sanhedrin. He uh, was Ab Betadin. Yerushalmi Mesubar. And now we must go to the Talmud Yerushalmi for a story. Yehuda ben Tabai. Hayu b'nei Yerushalayim rotsim limnoto nasib Yerushalayim. They wanted Lemanoto to appoint him as the prince in Jerusalem. What is a Nasi? We discuss so often the prince, Yudan, the prince, the prince, the prince. What is the prince? What's his job? Who is he? The head of the Betadin. That's the Al Betadin. So who's the prince? So it's the a head of the Jewish people. A what? It's a political Yeah. Okay, it's a political position. What's the position? They call him the exilar. That's the Resh Galuta. Is oh, the exilar. Let's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna repeat this a thousand times in every shul that I give until you understand what I'm telling you. In the Jewish people, we had. A king. I'm skipping a little bit of history. We had a king. After we were invaded by enemy forces and we lived in Israel under occupation, we had our own prince. What is a prince? What is a king? He's the ruler. He is the Jewish ruler. The king. Yes? Who is above the king in the Jewish kingdom, aside from HaKadosh Baruch Hu? The Sanhedrin. He has colleagues, other parts of government, like the Sanhedrin, like the Kohen Gadol, like the prophet. But he's the supreme ruler of the Jewish people. Now next to him, after there's no more king, we then have who? We have a Nasi. So once the Jewish people are occupied by enemy forces, we lose our king because now there's a new emperor, there's a new king, but who do we have replacing that? We have a Nasi. What is the Nasi to the Jewish people? He's the leader. He's the leader, and therefore I pledge allegiance to who? When I am a Jewish person living in Roman-occupied Judea and Samaria, who is my leader? The emperor of Rome or the prince of Jerusalem? 
The prince. The prince. Now I continue. Now I continue from there. And we go into Galut. So we're in actual exile. Page Lamed Chet. We're in exile. So let's say, for example, Bavel. Now Bavel, we no longer have an office of prince, but we're outside the land of Israel. Who replaces him, Rabbanit? The Resh Galuta. Resh Galuta is what they call in English the Exilarch. He is the one who runs the Jewish community in Galut. In Galut. When I'm in, in Bavel, I pay my taxes, I listen to the authority, I pledge allegiance to who? To Babylon or to the Exilarch, the Resh Galuta. Resh Galuta is the head of the Jewish government. From there we continue. We continue on into our exiles. Let's find ourselves in Egypt, for example. In Egypt you have what's called, we no longer have a Resh Galuta, an exilarch, but an office continues into what we call Negidut, the Nagid. An example of a Nagid, Rabbeinu HaRambam. The Rambam was a Nagid. His son was a Nagid. His grandson was a Nagid. What is a Nagid? He is the ruler over the Jewish community in exile in Egypt at the time. Now we had maybe other Nagidim. It could be that in Bavel we had other Nagidim and it could be in... But this was a person who led the Jewish government in exile. Yitzhak, if it bothers you, the thing you can move it. After the Negidim, this era disappears, we find ourselves in other exiles. So for example, a good example of this is Turkey. Turkey. You find yourself in Turkey. The head of the Jewish government in Turkey is? The Chacham Bashi. Very good. Chacham Bashi is the chief rabbi, for lack of a better term. He's the chief Chacham. The chief Chacham runs the Jewish government. There's a prison system, there's a taxation system, there's a court system, there's a community, there's also a religious element to all of this. But when you live in Turkey, who do you pledge allegiance to? The Chacham Bashi. The Chacham Bashi is your Jewish autonomous leader in exile. If this sounds foreign to you, I don't know if it's an exactly perfect fit. But who is the leader of the people of Tibet? The Dalai Lama. Now it doesn't make a difference who's occupying their land right now. But they pledge allegiance to, and I don't know exactly what his position is in terms of politics, yes? But most people, meaning he is essentially their prime minister, perhaps now in exile. Yes, I could, for example. This is our Chacham Bashi. And every Sephardic country, at least, that you go to in the world, had, if not a Nagin, then a Chacham Bashi. And the Chacham Bashi ran, not a Jewish community like a Bet Knesset that you and I know, ran the community and represented them to the rest of the country. The country, the Jews in Turkey, didn't live under Turkish law. They lived under Jewish law that the Turkish government allowed them to govern themselves so long as they paid taxes or whatever else. But a Turkish court wouldn't get involved in your divorce or your business disputes or whatever else would happen. It wasn't their business. You were a member of an autonomous Jewish nation in exile. This continues until which year? 1940. Very good. Baruch got the answer right. He's listened to the shiur. 1948. 
1948, the state of Israel is founded, and here ends Jewish government as we know it. Now, I don't wish to get now into the dark side of the state of Israel in the early years and all of that. What I wish to say is this narrative that for 2,000 years we were in exile. There was no Jewish government. There was no Jewish leadership. There was no, and finally, after 2,000 years, we've restored. You have to have a little bit of humility and, and a little less ignorance. There has always been a Jewish government in history. We have always governed ourselves, at least as Sephardim. I cannot speak for the Ashkenazim. I don't know. Over there, life was tough. Life was miserable. But for the Sephardim, we had an autonomous Jewish government until 1948. In 1948, we lost our Jewish government to whatever crazy system is in Israel right now. All you need to do is go onto your browser today, open up Israeli elections, and you, you, someone asked me today about Israeli elections. So I don't understand the blessed thing about what's going on over there. It doesn't make any sense. But I can tell you that this government that you see is symptomatic of a people who did not govern themselves for 2,000 years. Because never in our history was there chaos like this. A nasi is a real position. Jews who question, where do I stand? What am I? Am I an American? Am I an Israeli? Am I a Jew? You have to stop thinking like a person stuck here. You're a Jewish person who's a very grateful citizen of the United States of America. But don't forget for one moment that the nation which you are a part of is the Jewish people. And that Jewish nation extends all borders and all places and all countries and everywhere in the world you are still part of an autonomous Jewish nation. It might, it might not feel that way. Maybe most Jews have given up on this vision. That's already beyond my pay grade. I can't deal with that. But that's where we are, a nasi. A nasi here is a real position. He is our king. Think about this as our king. Now read the following story with me. It's told in the Talmud Yerushalmi. Yehuda ben Tabai, hayu b'nei Yerushalayim rotsim lemanoto nasi b'Yerushalayim. They wanted limnototo, to appoint him as the prince in Jerusalem. Barach v'halach lo l'Alexandria. He got up and fled to Alexandria. Where's Alexandria? Egypt. Egypt. Why? He was afraid of the Sadducee king, Yanai. And the people of Jerusalem would write letters. From the great city of Jerusalem to the small city of Alexandria. You have to understand here, you're talking about a huge Alexandria and a very small Jerusalem. Yerushalayim is always bigger. This is, our, this is our capital. I don't care how big it is and how small you think it is. How long will my betrothed, will my fiancé, sit in Alexandria and I will be alone and barren without him? How long will I sit here without him? This should remind you of a story we learned not so long ago about. Do you remember? Who was in the shoe last time? Last call of class. A couple weeks. Remember the rabbi of Yeshu, he ran away, Yerbushan Prachia, he runs away to Alexandria, and they send a letter from Alexandria to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem to Alexandria. You remember what I'm talking about? This story is curiously familiar because there are disparities between the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud who this story is about. 
Is this story about Rabbi Yushamban Perachiyam, the last generation, the Rabbi of Yeshu? Or is this story about Yehuda ben Tabai of this generation, the Rabbi who we're talking about today? These are very similar stories. Most likely they are Agadot, so you have to read into them more than just what it's telling you on face value. But the story sounds familiar because we read it last week with different names and slightly different words. It could be that Rabbi Yehuda ben Tabai served as the Nasi for a little bit. He stepped down on his own, by his own will. Because he made one of the most devastating mistakes of his legal career. And this is a story about an Ed Zomem. Can you tell me what is an Ed Zomem? An Ed, Ein Dalet. What's an Ed? A witness, very good. So what is a Zomem? It's in the Torah. False. It's a false witness. A false witness. Is there a better word? Than... Tell me, tell me. Conspiring witness. A conspiring witness. A Zomem, exactly. It's a person who bears false testimony against somebody else, but on purpose. I mean, they are going now to testify in the Jewish court. You need two men over the age of Bar Mitzvah to come and testify. They saw someone kill someone. They saw someone. This is the, the halakha. And if that happens, based on two witnesses, we will execute the person who they're bearing testimony against. Now what happens if two people, if two people bear witness against somebody, but they made it up. It's a story they made up on their own. They wanted to kill him. How do they kill him? If there is in America what they call suicide by cop, this is execution via bedin. We don't like Mr. So-and-so anymore, so what are we going to do? Two of us will make up a story, we'll go to the Betadin, we'll convince the Betadin that our story is true, and they will have to kill Mr. Sonzo, who we don't like anymore. Is anybody familiar with the teaching of Shimon ben Shatach and Prakavot? Okay, that's, that's not him. That's a... Very good, Rachel is correct. Shimon ben Shatach is the one who says that a person should very meticulously cross-examine witnesses. This is his teaching. Most likely this is his teaching in wake of the story that happened to his colleague right now. So if I can just share with you the halakha, what happens if we find out that two witnesses were conspiring to kill their friend? Their friend meaning their fellow Jew. What do we do to them? We do to them exactly what they were trying to have done to him. So if they were going to get him executed, then we execute them. Now we know two halakhot, a rabbi's taught us. Well, a few halakhot, but two that I'll share with you right now. The first halakha is that the person does not have to be executed in order for the witnesses to be killed also. Meaning, if we catch them before the execution of their friend, we will still kill them even though their friend survived. Because they, if it was up to them, they would have had him killed anyways. You understand this halakha? We don't have to have a tragedy happen in order to punish them. It's enough that they were conspiring to kill their friend, and we caught both of them, that we do that. Yes? This is no, they were, they were murderers. It's like a person who's running to kill their friend, and then we kill him in the middle. I mean, he was, if we wouldn't have intervened, he would have killed his friend. So this is not a matter of, of teshuvah here. That's a good question. 
The second, the second halakha we have is that we can only kill these witnesses if there are two of them. If there's only one witness, can you execute a person based off testimony of one witness? No. So if we only have one witness, then we don't kill him even though he was conspiring to kill his friend. What happens if you have two witnesses and they were conspiring and then one of them runs away? It's a fascinating halakha conversation. If you have to find the second one before you can execute the first one. Now here, you have a huge dispute between the Chachamim, our sages, the Pharisees, the Pirushim, and the Tzidukim. The Tzidukim believe that in order to execute a dim zomamim, conspiring witnesses, the person who they were trying to kill has to have been killed already. If you didn't, if, the, if, the, if their cons- conspiracy was not successful, then there's nothing to kill him for. It was a crime, but not a crime that's worthy of a capital punishment. That's in their, in their foolishness how they learned the Torah. Our Chachamim taught us the way Moshe Rabbeinu interpreted the Torah, and that is exactly what I told you before. So long as they took the stand and they were conspiring to kill him, the person doesn't have to be executed in order for them to be executed also. This is the background for the story you're about to read right now. The Sadducees, the Tzidokim. So outside of the rabbinic community. Exactly, and you. This is the story. Because he was engaged in, in bitter battle with the tzedukim. And the tzedukim were very successful, thanks to their kohanim colleagues, who were the kings of the Jewish government at the time. They were the kings of the malchut chashmonai. And he was waging a war with them about this particular topic of Edim Zomimim, of conspiring witnesses. They said that unless the person was not executed, we don't punish the witnesses. He says, no, even if he wasn't executed, we still punish the witnesses. What did he do? He had a court case in front of him where only one of the witnesses was a, an Edzomim. He was a conspiring witness. The other one was not. What did he do? He executed the one witness who was lying. Yeah? This is contrary to halakha. So he killed this man against halakha. Which says, you do not execute them until both of them are found to be conspiring witnesses. And there's a famous teaching in the Gemara. Let me pull it up in front of me right now. Yudam bin Tabai said, I will not see it in the consolation of Jerusalem. If I, if I didn't kill this witness. Meaning, I killed this man. Why? Because I was teaching a lesson to the tzedokim. 
The tzedukim will have to know the halacha is like the chachamim, that even though the person was not executed, that the witnesses will be punished. Amar lo Shimon ben Shatach. Shimon ben Shatach tells him, Are ben Chama, I will see the council of Jerusalem. Im lo shafachta dam naki. Meaning, you spilled innocent blood. Shimon ben Shatach says, you killed a man who didn't deserve to die. You violated halacha and you killed this man. What happens after this story? It says here, The Tosefta says that after Rabbi Shimon ben Shatach confronted him and said, you killed an innocent man. Yehuda ben Tabai took it upon himself that he would never rule on a halakha without permission of Shimon ben Shatach. Meaning, he was always going to be peer-reviewed by Shimon ben Shatach to make sure that he issued a halachic decision properly. There's a very unusual story in the Gemara that Yehuda ben Tabai spent a long time afterwards crying on the grave of this man who he killed. And there are different understandings. There are voices that were heard coming out of that grave and people thought it was a spirit and all kinds of unusual agadot. You even have a conversation in the writings of Rabbi Yosef Masas. If you look in Nachalat Avot, in the first volume, Rabbi Yosef Masas goes on a tangent discussing what he calls spiritism. And if it's permissible to summon spirits from the afterlife, and if, if Yehuda ben Tabai was allowed to do this because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin, so the member of the Sanhedrin has to know how to do all kinds of witchcraft and sorcery. And so he was practicing on the spirit of this man in the such unusual things that I decided I wasn't going to bring them into the shiur today because there's no purpose in you and I studying these things. If you care to jump down that rabbit hole, you're welcome to do it on your own. But here, you might be able to find a proof to the fact that Yehuda ben Tabai was really the prince. What's the proof? How does a bedin execute somebody against the rule, the law of halakha? What right does a Bedin have to rule against Halakha? Say it again louder. If they're ruling as the king, meaning they're not ruling according to the rule of law, but they're ruling according to the king. If Yehuda bin Tabai is the Nasi, he has the right to make an ex- executive decision to kill someone, even though the law does not allow for this person to be killed. That's a right that the king has. This perhaps is the proof of Rabbi Meir that Yehuda ben Tabai was the prince and not the head of the Sanhedrin. Because he used some kind of executive order here to execute somebody, even though, according to base halakha, he was not allowed to do it. It's interesting, if you look, like all the other rabbis of the Zugot on page 421, that second paragraph. If you remember, it's now a three-generation fight that began at the beginning of the Zugot. That the rabbis are unsure whether or not we lean on the animal's head on Yom Tov. Do you remember? It's now three generations. So he was the one of the opinion that we do not lean on their head. It's interesting that his ethical will the teaching that he left behind in Jewish history, Perkei Avot, is pointed at Jewish judges. Al ta'as 
don't make for yourself, don't be like a lawyer. What is an orech din? I'm not here to offend anybody who's a lawyer or listen to the show. What is an orech din? Literally, what does that word mean? Justice. That's what you'd want it to be, Toma. My mother said, Orech Din is someone who. Tagidi Otam? He arranges the law. He is yeah, like fixing the law, manipulating the law. He's like a Shulchan Aruch. You set a table, he's setting the table of the court. A lawyer's job is not to tell you the facts on the ground. That's a witness's job. A lawyer's job is to use whatever evidence is in front of you right now. To manipulate it to the benefit of their client. Yes, let's say that. If it's a defense lawyer, they'll do anything. Any, you see blood, they see, no, that's not his blood. You see a fingerprint, they prove to you it's not a real. Their whole purpose is to see what you're seeing differently than the way you saw it. And the prosecution is the exact opposite. The prosecutor, their job is to see everything as damning evidence that will indict a person. He says, don't be like either one of these parties who is manipulating evidence in order to receive your outcome. When both the defendant and the... The, no, the opposite of the defendant. The plaintiff, thank you. Are standing in front of you in judgment. Treat both of them like they're evil people. Why? Meaning, don't assume that one of them is, a, is correct. You have to treat both of them as, it's not that they're guilty until proven innocent. Just don't give one benefit over the other one. Both of them should be considered evil, and your job is to see which one you exonerate. When they leave you, you You should treat them both as innocent people, when they really accept upon themselves the judgment. And now that they left, even the one who was guilty is no longer really guilty because he's accepted upon himself the penalty or the payment or whatever else he has to do, restitution. And therefore he's not guilty anymore. Now you have to let him go. I think it's very telling that Yehuda bin Tabai leaves us in his spiritual will the importance of looking at evidence honestly. The importance of treating people before you sometimes as evil, sometimes as innocent. But his whole life teaching is about restoring justice. I think this is something that Yudab bin Tabai fought his whole life for. Fought against the Tzidukim to keep Torah safe, but also struggled with himself and decisions that he had made incorrectly about Jewish law that literally took a person's life. And I think that this is something that, that we can only be inspired by. Here you have a Chacham. According to many, he's the Nasi. He's the Prince. He doesn't have to justify his actions. He doesn't have to now let everything go through the desk of Rabbi Shimon ben Shaddach. He doesn't have to admit that he's wrong or tell you to be careful about corruption of justice. But he does anyways. Because he's a chacham. And he knows there's nothing wrong with saying, I made a mistake. Even if that mistake was a tragic mistake. But not only did he make a mistake, Abutai. Not only did he admit that his mistake was a mistake. He did another thing. What did he do? He made a way he instituted something that would make sure he would never make this mistake again. He decided he would no longer judge alone. That always, everything that would come out of his betadin would be reviewed by one of his peers. That's for the rest of life. That's something he took up on himself because he wanted to make sure, not just that he said, I'm sorry. It's very easy to say, I'm sorry. In life, we mess up all the time. So we say, I'm sorry. 
So the question is, what are you going to do so that this won't happen again next time? I know, sorry, sorry. You know how many times a day my kids tell me I'm sorry? <laughs> Just because they said I'm sorry now doesn't mean two minutes later something's going to change. So what is I'm sorry worth if there's no action plan for how to become a better person? In the laws of Teshuvah, the Rambam tells us that not only is charata important, is regretting our past important, vidui, you also have to I hate the, this word confession, but you have to verbalize what you did wrong. You have to tell HaKadosh Baruch what you did wrong. What's the third step of Teshuvah? Resolve not to do it again. You have to make sure from now until forever you won't repeat this chet. That's an important part of Teshuvah. Rehudah Metabai is telling us that even as a leader who has so many levels of, of you know, he's not a democratically elected official, he could hide behind so many masks and so many separations, so many barriers in him and the people. He's not accountable to you, but he chose to be accountable. And he chose to do Teshuvah. And he chose to live a life in the future in which he would not make a mistake as a leader. And for me, that tells me that there's, that's a great leader. That's somebody we can look up to. And if this is Yudah ben Tabai, then next week, Bezad Hashem, we're going to take apart who is Rabbi Shimon ben Shatach, who was his colleague. And I will tell you already now that the life and times of Rabbi Shimon ben Shatach are so unusual, but they're so, it's, it's a mesmerizing story. Who was Rabbi Shimon ben Shatach? And the influence that he had on the Jewish people, the, the disparaging, the, the disparities in the text between the Talmud Yerushalmi and the Talmud Bavli, who see him as almost two different people entirely, is something we're going to talk about next week with Hashem. Until then, uh, I'm going to wish you a lot of I'll take some questions and we'll get into the Shulchan Aruch with Hashem.